Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We're here today bringing together the best technical leaders from across the NHS to talk about topics which matter to them, as well as the challenges that they're facing within their roles. I'm Louis and I'm your host today. Today we're joined by Tom, Martin, Dan and Sishan to discuss healthcare innovations. The views expressed by the guests are their own and did not necessarily reflect official positions or policy of their organisations. Before we delve deeper into the topic today, uh, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Zishan, do you want to kick us off? Uh, sure. I'm Dr. Zishan Yusuf. I'm the CCIO for the Black Country um, ICB, uh, their digital clinical safety officer and their lead on virtual wards, as well as a practicing GP in West Birmingham. Brilliant. Thank you. And Tom? Hey, Louis. Thanks for having me on. I'm Tom Nicolright. I'm a GP working in Chester. Um, I'm also the clinical lead for digital transformation in primary care in Chester and Merseyside ICB. And I also work as medical director at Orca, the organisation for the review of care and health apps. Brilliant. Thank you. Great. Um, so, Dan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Louis. Uh, Dr. Dan Bunstone. I'm a GP in Chapelford in, uh, in Warrington, so Chester and Merseyside ICS. Uh, I'm clinical director for Warrington Innovation Network PCN, and I'm also a clinical advisor for Etcetera Health at BT. Brilliant, thanks, Dan. And last but not least, Martin. Is Martin. I'm a NHS GP in Newham in East London. I'm also the clinical lead for digital transformation, um, working within North East London ICB, and focus on the area of Newham. Brilliant, thank you, Martin. Um, so now that we've established a bit of context to everyone, um, let's move on to today's topic, which is healthcare innovations. You've all came up with a question or statement around healthcare innovations. So as usual, I'll work my way around the room asking you the reasons behind your questions, and then we'll open the discussion up to the panel. So I think today we'll start with Zishan. Um, your statement was looking at the usefulness of innovations for virtual wards in terms of increasing capacity and reducing bed blocking for medically fit discharge patients. Um, this is all in light of the upcoming wind pressures. Um, so tell us a bit about where that topic came from. Um, so uh, the, the topic comes from the fact that I, I just happen to be the clinical lead for virtual wards, but it's also... Um, I, I, it came as an offshoot of my work from the ICB as the, um, the CCIO, and um, there's a lot of potential available to virtual boards, and um, it's it, it, the potential is essentially, as it says on the tin, it's uh, wards which are virtual. I mean, you basically, um, we know patients do better at home, we know patients have better outcomes when they are at home, and we know patients are less uh, less potential risk when they are at home. Um, and we have a large amount of patients who go into hospital, but some of them don't require admission, but they just need that little bit of extra care. But because they don't have that, they're kept and they're admitted into hospital. So, and then you have patients who, uh, when they're in hospital and are well, um, can be discharged, but they're not simply because of the things like uh, social pressures or um, they some clinicians are not totally happy with them because they just want that little bit of extra observation. And so what we're doing here is reducing our capacity for newer admissions at all times due to that. And as a knock and effect on all of our um, ability and capacity for um, acute care. Um, and this then leads on to, um, a, a, it, well, it leads on to a lot of pressures that we feel all throughout, throughout the year. 
and um, a lot of frustrations in the clinical environment, especially in hospital when you have a patient that you know could do better um, off at home, but you can't do anything really about it. Um, so here's an opportunity for us to kind of have these things. I mean, in the old days, we used to have community hospitals, right? They were incredibly quite useful kind of places of care where you would have patients who were ready to be discharged from the ward, but they just weren't yet ready yet. And so you would put them in a community hospital and it was actually really good for rehabilitation and keeping them safe. Um, and that provision has shrunk over the last few decades. Um, I used to do work in a community hospital down in um, Persia when I was a GP trainee, and it was uh, it was a really quite a it was a it was a great experience actually. And there were also patients there that we admitted directly from the community into the community hospital, so it was a step up feature. But there was very much a step down feature of patients coming in from local hospitals. So with virtual wards, you can do something very similar, but not exactly the same, obviously, because they won't be um, they won't be that a direct observation, as it were, with a person looking at them. But they will be checked in regularly. There will be observations handed in, and we all know the tracking observations actually does give us a good indication of what how a patient actually is doing. I mean, there are teams in hospitals that do that. They have observ they. Uh, track these kind of um, these trends of their observations and they kind of use this to bring in like uh, clinical intervention. So uh, virtual wards has this massive potential um, and this massive use case, but that's only just a small part that we can do with virtual wards. One of the things we're encouraged and have been uh, pushing for is care homes to be under a persistent virtual ward function where um, care homes uh, submit their observations to patients and they're all, uh, the generally followed up by a virtual board team. And you can really come in quite early and do some early interventions to those uh, two patients um, while they're in care homes. Because often by the time a patient is, uh, a, a GP is alerted to a patient status in a care home, they're being quite unwell. They've actually been unwell for some time. Um, and you've noticed this deterioration and usually ends up in an admission to hospital. We know that often if we have a unexpected visit to a care home, it's usually gonna result in an admission um if um, not always but often and this is something that you can do with like an early intervention you can stop that from happening and again for from the patient's perspective it's golden they're they're not put into a new environment they get the care that they need um and we stop a matter from deteriorating further or faster um we do have uh, some rough numbers about um how good virtual boards have been um, we uh, at uh, in Dudley had one of the first virtual wards for pediatrics in the country, and um, I've been just giving some facts uh, um, from my virtual ward leads. We've prevented about 1,900 admissions um, over the last year or so uh, since we implemented virtual wards. Saved about 1,600 bed dates, and about 1,500 clinical hours have been saved uh, have have been kind of released. Not sure about um, CO2 emissions, but apparently we've saved about 154 tons of CO2. Um, not entirely sure we calculated that, but sounds good, right? Um, and I'll sell that. But um, it's why I'm so keen on this with our healthcare innovations and things that move on to the future. And it works very well from a system level. I would like more involvement with primary care. 
Um, as a primary care clinician, I feel that we have a lot to offer. And we were doing virtual wards a lot with COVID-19 patients and monitoring them and assessing them. And I do feel um, there, um, I have not asked for the data on that, but it would be nice to see how much, how well this was implemented across and how much clinical time was saved from secondary care and how much transmission into hospital was kind of saved when we started doing the virtual wars for COVID. And that's why I feel that it's very much um, something that I think we need to plan for in the future. One of the things that we would have to consider, though, is job planning, um, because virtual wards will require quite a bit of job planning, depending on who's going to be manning them. Um, if you have virtual ward teams, and that's really good because you would then have a persistent job plan available. But you would also need, depending on the level of virtual ward, consultant-led care um, and consultant input. From a GP perspective, if you're doing a virtual ward, you would definitely have to plan this into who's going to be running these kind of virtual wards, um, especially if you want to do this as an ongoing feature. And uh, that's my thoughts on virtual wards and how I feel this is a significant innovation. Brilliant. Thank you, Zishan. And really interesting to hear the data behind that as well. Um, even the CO2 one that took me by surprise. Um, so who wants to come in on that one first? Uh, how have you guys thought? Um, that innovations could help virtual wards or is there anything practically that's going on in your patch at the moment? Really amazing to hear some of the work you're doing with virtual wards, Ishan, especially the fact that you're, you're now starting to evaluate and see some of the benefits. I think the fact that you're actually releasing clinical time as well will be music to the ears of lots of CDs and CCIOs across the country who are, are thinking about doing more in the virtual ward space. Um, across Cheshire and Merseyside, I know there's a lot of um, talk around kind of moving towards hub and spoke type models. So perhaps they'll have a large hub that's uh, a place or an entire ICS to provide that um, that workforce that just entirely mans the the virtual wards. And I think there's a lot of a lot of merit to that because one of the biggest challenges I see with it is the fact you've got a lot of upfront planning to get them set up. You've got to think about your processes, how you train people, the, the kind of protocols you have for escalating treatments, and also how you support patients get discharged from the virtual wards. And it's that bit that, that I had particular thoughts on. I see virtual wards as a really interesting opportunity to change the dynamic between patients and their healthcare providers in that you're suddenly putting the patients in a situation where perhaps for the first time they're having a much greater role in managing their own health. Potentially carers or family members are having a much greater role in their health. And not in all cases, but for those virtual wards that do use remote monitoring, you're also suddenly exposing patients to digital health and to health tech. And within that, there's a great opportunity to to bring those patients that otherwise might have been excluded by digital health and really bring them with us in that movement. I'd love to get to a place where once someone's in a virtual ward, as part of their discharge planning, there's thinking around, well, they've got the tech now, what else can we support them with? Can we use technology that helps with balance retraining, coordinating carers, um, cardiac or pulmonary rehab, um, all of those things. So it's not a missed opportunity where they're, they're kind of cut off and discharge from the virtual awards and all those all that progress you've had with building their digital literacy is lost great thanks tom and over to you dan yeah great i mean completely agree with what tom was saying there and, and love the point position around the 
ongoing monitoring too. So for me, virtual wards aren't a point in time. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in what we're doing in Warrington later on. But they're, they're that continual monitoring piece. Like you said, you know, it's it's like a modified news two score effectively. You find people early, you treat them quicker, you enable them to be healthier for longer. Love it. I think that sounds really positive. Really, really positive. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be keeping watching Dudley closely. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm happy to just uh, just to give you guys a bit more here um, on the virtual wards and stuff. Um, uh, the device we use, uh, we mainly use two devices. One is the uh, Docobo uh, handheld device, which is um, the company is now owned by GraphNet, but essentially it's a handheld um, iPad with which has been sort of reinforced, so mm -hmm. that's a bit more breakable, uh, unbreakable, um, and it's uh, uh, it, it, it it's it's the patients are given some training of how to input uh, data into that. And we've had a really good response here. And for uh, digital inequalities is quite where I cover a patch which has probably one of the highest levels of social inequality and digital inequality in the country. Um, and uh, these type of virtual boards and this type of training involved really does help in kind of upscaling and supporting individuals here. Um, and we do actually have further on programs, which aren't directly linked to the um, virtual wards. But to be fair, Tom, you made a really good point that we could link them into um, the digital inequalities program while taking those patients who've learned those skills and then moving them on into something like that for future reference. And I'm, 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 that's it's a really good idea. So I think I'll, I'll bring that feedback back to my digital inequalities team. Um, and uh, the other um, uh, app that we use, I think, is Lucy, which I'm not massively familiar with because it was it was a legacy bought in from one of the other uh, places when we um, integrated into one ICB. But um, we have a lot of patients who are using that to feed in their their numbers. Um, and then uh, lastly, it's um, the hub and spoke model. Um, we've actually this it's. Um, so my my virtual uh, ward lead is a gentleman called Jim McDonald, who um, is basically been the powerhouse behind this. He's fantastic. He's done a lot of good work. Um, he's actually also presented at uh, Re, uh, Digital Health Rewired on the virtual wards, but he's done fantastic work over the last two years or so on the virtual wards, pushing it, implementing it, and kind of being its massive champion of it. And I've uh, it, I, I couldn't really be doing this kind of level of thing without him. And we have other members of the team like Claire Morrissey, um, who's, who are very um, uh, highly regarded and they're, they're very well spoken in the, in the community field. So I've very much been helped by this team of remarkable individuals when it comes to that. And I just wanted to say it because <laughs> I felt bad if I was because they've done a lot of the heavy lifting and they've been fantastic. And Docobo have actually been incredibly supportive of us using their their equipment to do the virtual wards. And it's actually been really helpful of how good the device is and how useful the device has been. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, I think you wanted to come in there, Tom. Yeah, addition, I just wanted to come in on kind of the digital inclusion piece. Um, Orca commissioned a poll, a kind of population-wide survey um, a few months ago that found that 60% of over 65s agreed that we needed to look at new ways of managing our care to try and relieve some of the pressure on the NHS. Um, and separate research I've come across shows that actually um, the, older, the older patients are really willing to use digital health. In fact, the gap seems to be in what healthcare professionals think older patients are capable of. So we don't tend to offer digital health 
to to those those demographics. Addition, I just wondered whether you had you know, what your experiences were of some of the older, frailer patients using um, using virtual wards and using that kind of Docker boat technology, and whether you might be able to bust some of the um, you know some of the prejudices people might have around older patients in tech. So um, I think people got to remember Bill Gates is at what seventy, right? He's almost seventy. Um, so there is um, there's a myth about um, people, older people using technology. Um, and it, I think it actually comes down more to financial rather than um, um, age demographics. Um, there will always be something in a technological field where a person feels a bit mystified. Um, but I find that's uh, with myself, if someone asked me to set up something which 18-year-olds uh, are using right now, I would struggle, right? But I can be taught how to use it with some patience. Um, and in regards to people with uh, that type of, once they get over the fear of using it and they realize how easy it is to use, um, I don't think there's actually that much of a concern. Um, it's, 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 it's something where we are making assumptions and we always remember what assumptions mean um, and how dangerous assumptions are. Um, because most people um, can do this. Um, in fact, I would say the vast majority of people can do this, but it's really a lot more about the financial means. Data poverty is a big feature here. So we provide the data for them to use the virtual, uh, the, um, the Dockable systems. But once they leave that kind of, um, that, uh, that um, environment and they're coming back to their own digital equipment is is the equipment that they're using good enough for this if you remember during the pandemic AcuRx, um we couldn't a lot of times you wouldn't use an iphone 6 for AcuRx for video consultations um and um i don't think that that's an issue now um, um but it's an example of where people who are better off and have newer phones could access that right so if you're older some old patients didn't really see the need for that type of technology. So Tom, there's no, like, I was not giving a specific answer, just giving several answers and my thoughts on that, um, because that's what I felt just from my own kind of experience. But often I think the biggest blockage really is poverty. Um, and um, that, but this is where it's, it's interesting um, from a perspective of waste. The NHS uses has a lot of technology that we recycle. Well, actually, sorry, we don't recycle. We have phones given to the ICB. We have laptops given to the ICB, and every few years we get new ones. So there's a large pot of this technology which essentially just thrown into the landfill. We don't sell it. We don't. I uh, we often just dump it. Um, and part of our um, uh, our digital inequalities measures was to take that uh, this never ending so essentially it's a never ending supply of tech and redistributing um, and enabling people to be able to use that um, because otherwise no one is using it um, and it's something I I honestly think we should be across the whole board we should be doing this across the whole country no one should be struggling to get hold of tech um in that way especially when we're wasting it away digital poverty on the other hand um uh, so as in data poverty um there are systems and schemes where you can donate data i mean i'm pretty sure we're all, probably all aware of this and 
I think it's something again that should be promoted. And it's it's it doesn't sound like a massive charity's cause. You're not not going to see, you know, Bob Geldof singing, asking for everyone to give money for people to have data. But I think it actually is really really important, um, and it can help a lot of people become uh, empowered. Great, thank you. I think that leads us really nicely onto uh, Martin's question, really, which today he wanted to focus on um, a discussion around how do we reduce barriers um, to technological innovation. So I think some of the things we mentioned there is blockers in terms of poverty, um, etc. So over to you, Martin, um, where that kind of question came from, give us a bit of context. Yeah, thank you for that, Louis. And also thank you, Zisha, and because some of the, the remarks you've made point at areas where um, you know there has been a great amount of technological innovation when it comes to the virtual wards. And when we turn our eyes to other parts of our healthcare system, we actually see that there is a real poverty in technological innovation. And although there are successes around this, uh, virtual wards, there are areas where we could be doing much better. So um, my thoughts around this, the starting points really for me is around us acknowledging that there have always been obstacles to adopting um, digital um, technologies and new technologies in healthcare. And a lot of these obstacles have evolved over time. Um, you know, Traditionally, you have had the main barriers, which include resistance to change, lack of digital skills among staff, and also alluded to earlier, digital poverty uh, among uh, patient populations, a preference among um, healthcare managers and practitioners to traditional ways of working, and also ultimately the concern that reoccurs around security, privacy of digital health data. Over the last few years, I just want to first of all point out that the trends have begun to shift. We've seen and witnessed a lot of it due to the pandemic and um, healthcare having to be forced to adapt to new ways of working. We've seen an increase in openness to new tech adoption, for example, and briefly ACRX was um, discussed, you know, the introduction of asynchronous communication technology existed for a long time, but the pandemic rarely led to a huge amount of, of adoption because we saw clinicians on the ground saw the value of using that piece of technology. There's a big question as why did we not adopt this technology earlier? But due to uh, the necessity of communicating to our patients in new ways led to a, a lot of primary care doctors and also secondary care clinicians and practitioners using that technology and commissioners and um, most importantly commissioning those pieces of technology. And although we've seen some of this new openness, there are still a huge amount of difficulty in really utilising new tech. And what I mean by that is that over the last year in particular, we've seen what has been the revolution in generative AI technology, as well as, um, you know, new pieces of um, uh, technology that would seem to be a really um, good fit for healthcare. Um, despite that, you know, there hasn't been a huge um, widespread um, utilization or nor have we seen healthcare startups who have, um, you know, who are producing products in this way really been um, 
um, found really they found it really difficult to get their um, pieces of tech commissioned in various ways. There's various reasons for that. Um, one is due to the commissioning landscape um, being quite complex um, within the National Health Service. Um, I've had numerous discussions with various um, technology startups who are interested in providing various solutions for primary care clinicians to um, produce and write notes in an efficient manner. However, some of the feedback they give to me is that they do not know where to start, who to speak to. They often contact me as a clinical lead for digital transformation. And I have to respond to them that actually that isn't my remit. Um, so as a result, if you look at other industries, whether that is in manufacturing, whether that is in the legal sector, you're starting to see a lot of adoption of new ways of working, new technology, but you turn to healthcare and we it's still lagging behind. And a lot of it is due to the complexity of the commissioning and it's so fragmented, depending on which part of the country you go to. And this is having a really negative downstream effect. You know, if you, when people ask me about um, technological change in our healthcare service, I often respond to them saying that, the breakthroughs you see now will probably trickle down to us in six, 10 years time. And that's a very disappointing thing for me to say at the moment. It doesn't have to be the case, but unless that, unless we change the way we commission, make it easier to try pilot new piece of technology within our um, healthcare service, we're not gonna see um, we're, we're not gonna see the benefits. And we talk about the workforce challenges, we talk about the fact there's high rate of burnouts, we're talking about um, you know, um, a, a lot of um, difficulty around, um, you know, staffing. If we can utilize these tools, they could help with a number of those challenges I've mentioned. And I just want to sort of um, turn to a, a few quick points about what I think we need to do in order to really help to reduce these barriers I've mentioned to technological innovation in um, the NHS in particular, also primary care. Uh, one of the things I've really advocated for is for de developer demand-led approach to technological adoption um, through streamlining, streamlining the commissioning process. What I mean by that is make, creating a more standard commissioning process across the NHS England-wide. Um, obviously, we've got a devolved structure, so the Welsh NHS is different, but the Scottish NHS is different. But if you could turn around to um, technology startups who are interested in producing products to help us and help clinicians help the NHS on the front line, if you could turn to them and say, actually, there is a, there's a, a standardised approach to digital commissioning. What I mean by that, you've got, uh, you know, you've got named chief clinical information officers who are in charge of a particular remit, or you have a named digital transformation officer at the ICB level, so that when a, uh, you know, a, a tech company is wanting to put forward a digital solution to a particular problem, they know where to start. That that will be, you know, something that's really helpful. With virtual wards, you know, the huge success of that has come really from the top-down push from central government, really encouraging um, that move. And that's one reason for the success. So, you know, you're not going to get that with every, every type of piece of tech. So making the process as easy as possible. The second thing I think that's really important, really, is 
um, you know, fostering a culture of innovation and experimentation within the NHS to encourage the development and adoption of new technologies. And what I mean by that is in my patch in Newham, we've got something called the Newham Improvement and Innovation Hub, which I, along with a few other clinicians, set up a few years ago. And what we did was um, through um, Health Education England funding, we managed to um, employ um, um, health fellows to research various areas and basically take a session a week to look at how um, we can solve a particular problem, whether that is um, part, you know, some of the health inequality work, whether that's utilizing new technology in, in new ways. And, you know, it would be great to have these innovation hub models across the country. There's other places doing similar things. So it's just encouraging that culture of trying to do and think about doing things differently. And the last thing I think is something that is not uh, looked at a lot or discussed enough is really providing training and support for healthcare professionals, professionals to enhance their skills, knowledge in use of new technologies. And what I mean by that is I'm not expecting every um, nurse, physiotherapist to become a coder or to learn code or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it will be great if, um, you know, we teach frontline staff and we provide them with the support they need to understand some of the new technologies that are on the horizon, whether that is generative AI, whether that is, um, you know, um, you know, virtual worlds, for example. And, you know, when I sit in meetings and we have chats, sometimes I'm hearing things that I don't quite understand. And, you know, if we provide uh, the opportunity for um, those who are working in NHS to really upgrade their skills and knowledge base around this, it will be helpful. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. I do think that, you know, having these sorts of discussions in these forums, whether it's podcasts, whether it's at conferences, whether it's in meetings, will slowly help to implement the cultural change that's needed to help to bring down those barriers. Thanks. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I think one of the most important things is breaking down them barriers to enable us to reach our potential in terms of healthcare innovations. Um, so open it to the panel, really, who, who'd like to come in on that first. Yeah, Sean. Hi. Um, no, thanks, Martin. There's really, really, uh, really key and important insights here. And um, I always find with a lot of tech companies, um, they often come to us with a solution rather than the actual problem uh, that they bought the solution for. So it's sort of um, it's it's sort of like the the, the market research wasn't who did you do it with and who 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 did you actually pose this question. So they'll come to me and say, we have the solution, it's going to cost X, Y, Z. And I'm like, but who's the solution for? I mean, you, you don't know how we operate. This is not how we operate from a system level. I can't, we can't use this gear and you're asking for far too much money. Um, and I feel like having such a local level innovation hub, I think is really good because it's sort of like, you, you, they, they they now understand this is what the actual problem is. This is the problems we want you to solve. Um, and I think then it's like, well, the, now can you come up with the solutions for the actual real problems that we have um, and give some much better and directed kind of loop cycle feedback here? Um, we uh, the when it comes to the um the training of our own kind of local providers and GP practices and stuff, um, one of the things that we have locally is a digital first primary care program um, where we looked at the stuff that we actually had, AccuRx, EMIS, website building, and we actually realized that no one locally knew how to use these that well. 
Um, and these are key programs that you would hope that everyone kind of knew how to do, but they didn't. Um, so we started a program of actually interacting with practices on digitizing them and showing them how to use these things that have been readily available to them for a really long time um, and drive up the usage of them to kind of make their lives a lot easier. And it's been a very positive program. We found it to be really helpful. Um, and I think the Digital First Primary Care Program was a national program. Um, so I think we've all kind of, but it's, I have to say it's it's something that there's a lot of lessons learned from it and a lot of the relationships that have been established from it when it comes to further kind of innovations and things that we want to upskill people on, then I think it's a great and it's a key avenue for us to proceed down if that if even if the funding doesn't continue, the actual relationships will. Thank you. And over to you, Tom. Um Martin, what a great topic. And there's so much you could get into there. Um, I think similar to Zishan's response, I would kind of say that I think I think part of there is certainly a challenge around how do we get brand new innovation into the NHS. But I think an even bigger problem is how do we scale up already existing innovation and get everybody using it? And there's actually a really great document. I've just got it up on my computer from the Health Foundation called Against the Odds, which is all about how do you scale innovation in the health system. And it's it's very much about creating a sense of local ownership of innovation, even if it wasn't created in one place. So instead of saying, here's a solution that does A, B, and C, now go through A, B, and C, it's about saying, here's a solution, here's some, how some other guys are doing it. Why don't we build a bespoke um, context for it to be deployed in here? And that's some of the work we've been doing with um, dietitian teams in Cheshire that redesign a digital diabetic pathway where we said, here are some of the solutions available here. Here are some of the national NHS digital solutions. Let's build a process together where there's shared ownership. And you just you get that buy-in from the start. And what it probably means is across different places and patches, you do get some variation, but ultimately you're rolling out and scaling the innovation. But I think that's that's how you get kind of the you know, potentially the enthusiasts, the visionaries involved. But the wider question about how do you get clinicians at large to adopt digital health is a much bigger question. There was a paper that came out, I think it was about three years ago, where they did this discrete choice experiment. And they kind of, I think it was about 200 different technologies that they've made up the researchers with a few key features. And they just got clinicians to go through them all, comparing one against the other and saying which one they feel happy recommending and which they wouldn't. They made these decisions and ranked kind of these, these 200 different project products. Um, and interestingly, what the researchers found is evidence base for digital health is really important to adoption. There's no doubt about that. But what's even more important than evidence base, in fact, it carries about the same weight as three published research papers, is if a colleague is already using it. And what has even more power than that, and the same weighting as five published peer-reviewed papers is whether the NHS recommends it, an NHS badge of approval. For me, that all comes about, it all comes down to trust. And I think for that huge, that broader base of clinicians that are wary about innovation, I think if we can get into a position where, if not the NHS at large, at least ICBs or trusts or royal colleges are happy to put their name next to innovations, we'll see greater uptake. We're starting to see that a little bit with NICE now updating some of their guidelines. Um, Orca have done a lot of work with ICBs across the country to build 
digital health formularies with approved ICB approved products in them, just to give frontline grassroots clinicians the confidence that what they're choosing is, is kind of sanctions and they're not putting themselves at risk by doing something innovative and creative. I think that's really important. Oh, just to feed in with Thompson, just remind me of something. Um, before the pandemic, uh, Babylon, GP at hand, had opened up a uh, outpost, as it were, in Birmingham. And uh, there was a lot of concerns from local GPs about the service um, being there. Um, they were worried about uh, top slicing or losing on their numbers. But I think what people always seem to forget was the innovations they were bringing to the service. And there was always more worried about the bottom line. Um, but when the pandemic happened, we all had to move to that type of working. Um, that uh, Babylon and GP at hand was providing. As Martin said, the pandemic kind of accelerated our innovation, our uptake of technology massively. But it also then ended up leading with that the thing that made GP at hand one of the big factors that made it so popular was no longer a key factor in Birmingham. The That accessibility, that remote accessibility that was being provided at a massive scale suddenly was no longer the special factor about them because all the practices were doing it. And sometimes this level of, um, so we proved they all can follow this digital pathway. They all can innovate and move in that specific direction, but it's the environment that require those things to change um, that happened during the pandemic. And um, I'm not saying we should produce another pandemic and, you know, um, and and to to produce similar results but it's sort of that this we shouldn't be wary of when someone comes up with a really good idea and as tom said of how do we get that to a national level and that local ownership i think was really important because when you think of that reflection of how people suddenly started using these innovative things during the pandemic it was a lot of local ownership involved everyone knew this is my practice and so why should i sign up to another practice when my own practice is now doing that exact same thing so I just as a real life example, this is what I remember happening um, as it occurred. And um, I, I think we should remember those lessons from that time period. Thank you. Uh, I think that leads us uh, nicely on to Tom's question as well, which was how can we, um, in terms of health tech, support patients to self-manage and empower them? Uh, so not just reducing them barriers, but then, as we've discussed then, now empowering them as well into their, uh, their own health tech journey. So, Tom, do you want to take it away? Yeah, thanks, Louis. Um, just to give the background, this has been a passion of mine for a long time, just about trying to support patients to self-manage. I mentioned the one poll research that Orca commissioned earlier in the year that showed that over 60% of 65-year-olds and 68% of the whole population believe we need to start doing things differently with the way we manage our own health to support the NHS. Um, that partnered with the fact that almost a half of the UK population have used health apps. There's the increase in wearable usage. More and more patients are consulting the internet for medical advice. It means that there is this real appetite, I think, for the, for the UK population to start managing their own health better and playing a more active role in their health care. The other side of the argument, I think, came forward with the announcements a couple of weeks ago from NICE that, um, that NICE were going to begin recommending digital health tools to support weight loss services. Um, and I was quite surprised reading the NICE report to find that one of the drivers of that 
was the fact that 30 to 70 percent of the population don't have access to local weight loss services. So you've got on the one hand, this driver of patients really want to start playing more active role and see digital as an enabler. And on the other hand, actually a lack of access to face to face services um, is, is a perfect opportunity for digital to plug that gap. So I think there's great opportunity for us using digital health to empower patients. Um, however, there are risks with that. I don't think anyone here would agree that the, what we need to do is say to everyone, right, just go onto the internet and you can manage everything yourself. In fact, we know when patients do tend to go to things like the app store to download health apps, the main things they're looking for are star ratings or whether friends have recommended the app. But that just doesn't correlate to the quality, the safety, the data integrity of the app at all. Um, in fact, from, from research has done about one, about only one in five apps pass quality standards. So for a patient randomly downloading something from the app store, there's an 80% chance they'll download something which is worse, rubbish, uh, possibly rubbish or worse, harmful. So the question remains, how do we support patients to do more with their health, using health tech as, a, as an enabler to that, but to make sure that they're doing it safely and making sure that they're doing it in the most effective way possible? I'd be interested in the panel's experience of, of using health tech in that way to empower patients. Yeah, I mean, th thanks, Tom. It's, um, you know, gosh, I mean, Tom and I have worked together for, for years in, uh, in, in, in health tech and um, and development so sort of know the market really really well which is a, which is a great place to be i think i couldn't agree with tom more really um the the self-care that sort of medicine 3.0 as it keeps being described as that that feels to be the future we all track our uh, movements and steps and all those sort of things but actually the device behind that is a really critical piece I'll divert to Tom for this next point. I think there's around 350 to 400,000 medical apps. Tom, is that figure about right? Yeah, that's right, Dan. Yeah, so I think if only around 20% of those that you've found are, are up to scratch, it's a, it's pretty worrying because it means that theoretically 80% aren't. And of course, people are out there looking for that information, looking to be empowered. I think as clinicians, we are well aware that patients often want to know how to make themselves better, how to live longer, how to not just live longer, but be healthy for longer periods of time. So, yeah, I mean, Tom's point is very, very well made. I, I'm, I won't go completely onto my, uh, my section yet, but of course, that's what I'm going to talk about now around population health management and around where we're going to go to. So, yeah, couldn't agree more, Tom. Thanks, Dan. Over to you, Martin. Um, Tom, thank you for your comments. You made some really um, insightful points. I just wanted to uh, comment one thing around um, the use of apps. I, I do definitely think that they can be really helpful and useful interventions and um, in um, Newham we've found several applications to be really helpful and we've also seen the use of apps in secondary care for example, around di remote diabetes monitoring uh, and so forth. And I also think the regulation around them have improved over the last years so there's been a huge huge catch-up um what i would say though is um i think that when it comes to uptake one of the most challenging things i think for patients is really navigating the system so as you mentioned too, if you go on the app store and you search hypertension there will be a plethora of apps there and um you know i know they the you know, NHS, formerly NHS Digital, were aware of, aware of this and they have various um, um, 
places you can go to to see recommended approved NHS apps. But if you spoke to a lot of patients about <laughs> where they would go to, they'll mention the app store. So I, I think there is um, some work to be done in that, that area. And due to the fact there are so many options, there is some skepticism because often patients would have had a bad experience in downloading something that they thought was a useful health piece of health technology but turned out not to be so there's a wider discussion um that we you know that that may have to happen at a high level uh, around the role of certain technology providers such as apple and um and google and their app stores and the way they promote certain healthcare technology uh, the second thing really is that i do think we need to get better at, at utilizing and promoting um, these health technologies in our day-to-day -day workflow to patients. Um, but a lot of what um, holds me and some of my colleagues back is the fact that we always looking for the evidence base and um, companies like Orca have been great, um, but you know, every other day there seems to be a new piece of health technology. So, you know, me, my, my, my real ask really would be, um, you know, it would be great if there was um, more of that reporting uh, available to clinicians and maybe, maybe you know, a bit, a bit of hand-holding in terms of how we can promote and support our, our, our patients with these. And Dishan? Uh, just um, like, uh, excellent here from Tom and just echoing um, Dan and Martin's kind of points. But one of the things that I, I, I we found that helped quite locally was the digital clinical safety team. Um, because Orca does the DTAC and the, the kind of the, the uh, review of the apps. But when you do a digital clinical safety team, you do a lot more um, a review of it for the DCB0129, the DCB0160. Your review of it is a lot more in-depth. Um, unfortunately, process like that is going to be really slow, but it does allow a much more better in-depth analysis of the app in question. And it gives you a much better review about whether the app is um, a suitable app for the patients and whether it's something that we can then roll through to our patients. Um, so I think having a really good digital clinical safety team, which is organized and has involvement from inferior nation governments, um, can lead to a lot of assurances for GP practices. Um, I think if GP practices are also aware of, primary care is also aware of what exactly the work the digital clinical safety team does is to kind of um, protect uh, patients and clinicians in the uses of various technologies. So. Um, I think it's it's a good way forward for us, um, a sort of a step up from Orca, um, because it's simply uh, they have there's a national mandate for these things to be done anyway. Um, and then when it comes to um, what should we be approving, um, I do feel an update should be sent regularly to GPs about uh, the database of apps which we think have been approved and tick box by the ICB of we think these ones are suitable to be used for this problem. Um, it would be nice in future if the NHS app could link you directly in with um, various apps um, of you know, which have already been approved of and nationally recommended. I mean, there's already a national digital clinical safety team anyway. So it'd be nice if they had this has been approved by the national clinical safety team to be used. I doubt that stores like Apple or Google Play would ever take accountability really for the apps that they put onto the system. We've all heard horror stories of children f using a lot of their parents' money um, uh, on these apps. And there's, there's these type of concerns on that type of safety. But 
um, I do feel that that would help in the way and the progression that you want to go with. Yeah, Bob. I, ju- I just want to say thanks. Thanks very much for your for your feedback on that. I think it's it's reassuring to hear that actually a bit of bit of hand holding and kind of trying to break it down and say here are a small selection of apps for particular condition areas would be beneficial. And that's something we certainly started exploring both with um, with patients and with clinicians to just focus on small numbers of technologies for very spe- very specific problems. Um, but it's a really interesting suggestion about bringing the clinical safety team more into that. I think generally the clinical safety team, unless you're you know heavily embedded in clinical informatics in your ICB, are often a bit of a mystery team. And I certainly don't know many um, clinical directors or you know frontline GPs or nurses who would know what a clinical safety team actually does. So I think trying to give them a little bit more, um, I'm not sure, a little bit more publicity, trying to ha- ha- give them a more front, front and centre role in officially sanctioning and reassuring the clinical workforce, I think would be really powerful. So it's definitely something I'll take back to uh, to the ICB. Yeah, on a personal level, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to that bit there uh, from someone outside the NHS um, you talked about wearable technology. I've recently purchased a Whoop band, which you might be familiar with. It kind of like it, it records everything from your sleep to your heart rate throughout the day, um, your stress, all kinds. Not not going to advertise it for them, <laughs> but I I got that for a recommendation from a friend, and I know you touched on there might be might be better if there was a centralised place place from the NHS that promotes app, and I think patients have every level of health and fitness will benefit from that. Because um, I certainly know, although I don't use the NHS that much, if there was a centralised place that might promote apps for people my age, um, it'd be always good to go on and, and look at that. So, yeah, it was really interesting point of discussion there. So thank you, everyone. Um, and last but no means least, uh, we'll come over to Dan. Dan, you wanted to provide us uh, a bit of an insight into how you're practically implementing healthcare innovations at Warrington? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. You've, uh, there's, there's been three delightful little segues into what I'm going to talk about. So, of course, you just brought around Whoop, and it's really interesting around what happens with that data. Uh, you, you will probably find it interesting, but I suspect, and I don't mean to cast any aspersions here, Lou, but you might need somebody to translate that, or you could do with a bit of help translating, all right, so what does all this stuff mean for me? Definitely. How do I live longer? How do I live happier? How do I live healthier? What do I need to change? Sleep patterns, one thing, pulse is doing something. You've probably not got blood pressure, but I suspect it'll read things like stress levels. So, you yeah. know, how, how do you improve on all those bits and pieces? Uh, and of course, Sishan's talked about the virtual wards and proactive care there too. And Tom's talked around, uh, uh, around the self-care piece. What I wanted to talk about is the work that we are doing practically. So trying to bring in all those, th- th- those ideas into practice in surgery. And so what we've done is we've brought in the three things into Chapelford, which is uh, which is my surgery group in Warrington. Um, so we brought in cloud-based telephony, which was part of the national initiative, but of course we moved ahead of that and uh, and, and put that in place before then. Uh, we've got a new triage module, and we've got some really proactive population health management too. The whole purpose is around three main topics really: to get enable patients to get access broadly enable patients to get the right access, so see the right clinician at the right time, but also enable patients to be as healthy as possible, to support their own healthcare and actually to democratise the data. And by that, I mean all that data that your Garmin or your Whoop or your MyZone will feed to you, actually providing the so what, the answer to that question, the punchline for that, for the, for that start of that sentence. 
Uh, I'll just go through those in a bit of detail now. So the cloud-based telephony, supported by uh, supported by BT. Of course, I work at BT, so that's obviously understandable why we've, we've got that relationship there. And the thought is ultimately that patients will try to get through the surgery, but it helps us to do a couple of things, really. It enables patients to get access broadly. So, of course, there's a queue. The reality is most surgeries struggle between 8 and 10 in the morning because most patients will tend to phone at that point in time because that's the longest time since the surgery has been last open. Um, enables us to allow the best use of resources. So, of course, we can track which options patients want to access the most. It isn't always see a doctor. There's a whole host of reasons why patients want to access the surgery. And, of course, by checking out and working out exactly what patients are needing and want to get certain points in time, we can better map our staffing against that. And it enables us to plan in some detail, too. And I think a very helpful, but I guess uh, sideline caveat is that it's enabled our teams to work remotely. So you don't have to have a full reception team always sat in the surgery working, which is good from two points of view. Uh, enables work-life balance better for staff. So if team members have got uh, children they need to pick up from school, et cetera, they can do split days that works for them. Actually, from a recruitment perspective, I haven't just got to recruit from a 10-mile radius around side Warrington. Actually, suddenly recruitment almost becomes national. Not quite, but of course, you theoretically fish from a much bigger pool. So there's a whole host of benefits there, but I won't wax too lyrical about that. Uh, triage, moving on to that next. We recognise primary care is, and in fact, the NHS is, is awash with demand. We could probably meet patients' needs at the moment as an NHS provider. I doubt we can meet once. There aren't enough doctors. There is too much demand and there is too much need for those services. That isn't to blame anybody. That is simply to reflect a reality of where things are. Primary care probably deliver around 30 to 35 million appointments per month. Insane numbers when you look at that. But of course, that's the reality. And unfortunately, that still isn't enough. So we partner with Anima. So what Anima do, uh, you guys might be familiar, they're a triage type module. Uh, I won't try and resell Anima. Of course, they will know their detail much more than us. But what I really liked is they are AI based. So it isn't just a simple email. It's not just an alternative way of contacting the surgery. They have active signposting too. So, of course, if you put in a problem, they will actively help you as a patient to go direct to see physio, go to see the pharmacy, uh, get a prescription. They will send tasks through in a very different way. So the reason that's really important for me is as a clinical director, we've got the additional roles. So, of course, a whole host of additional roles inside primary care that you can really utilise as a massive benefit for patients. And actually, as a young chap, I don't talk about myself there, of course, as a young chap with right shoulder pain, you probably don't need to see me. Your best port of call might be going straight to a physio. And the great news is we've got physio appointments available tomorrow. Appointments with me might be a little bit longer than that. Triage enables patients, again, I wouldn't quite say to self-care, but it empowers them to care for themselves in a different way. And again, democratises that access, enables them to access the service correctly. I, I think cynically, the NHS is very good at saying patients arrive at the wrong place at the wrong time. They're, they're, there's a sweet spot. They're either too early or too late at the wrong place, at the wrong door. I think things like Anima, things like the triage really do help and support patients to get the health care that they need. And, and the last one is around proactive care and population health management. This is the thing that I'm absolutely most interested in. It's because I think this single topic has the most opportunity the NHS has to enable us to help our patients, help our citizens, help people to look after their health, not to become quite so ill quite so soon. And broadly, that's going to help with demand too. 
we're looking at two discrete areas, COPD, so chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, respiratory problems, and also hypertension, blood pressure management. And um, we picked those two categories simply because with respiratory disease, of course, COVID's been in the background, winter's coming along. So respiratory disease is one of those problems where you have to come in and out of A&E and you often suffer a waxing and waning course. We know that if we, to Zeshan's, uh, to Zeshan's point earlier on, we know that if we find you with illness earlier, we can treat you quicker, we stop you deteriorating, you get better quicker. So as a rough example, if you've got a respiratory disease and you get an um, infection on top of that and we spot you early, we can probably have you treated and turned around in a couple of three days. And you're feeling better. To be clear, I'm not saying the bug's gone, but you will start to feel better much quicker. If we only get you at day seven, eight or nine when the bug's really got hold, actually, it's much harder to treat that. I've obviously simplified a little there, but for good descriptive purposes. The other thing we're looking at is around blood pressure. So we know that nationally there are literally millions of people out there who have either blood pressure that they don't know have got high blood pressure or blood pressure that's outside of the controlled ranges. So what we've done in Warrington, and again, in partnership with Etcetera Health at BT, we have used their health app, which is called Healthy You. So patients, around 1,100 of our patients have got the app, they've been onboarded onto that, and they will uh, submit their data. So what we've done is we've looked at their medical records, we found our most high-risk patients, and we've onboarded around about 1,000 patients. The reason we picked a thousand is a couple of reasons. Nice round number to get to, which is uh, which is always good. It's probably bigger than anywhere else nationally for this sort of thing, which is again a, a really good target. And if we manage to treat the thousand patients, which we're well on our way to do, we'll save around fifteen heart attacks and strokes over the next couple of years. Really big numbers there. I mean, the human cost of saving fifteen heart attacks and strokes is insurmountable. If I try for a second just to put a number on that. We think the cost to healthcare alone is around about £200,000. Cost to the economy, loss of income, loss of earnings, the whole host of things that come to that is, is, is probably five to 10x that figure. So, you know, human cost insurmountable, £180,000 plus loss of earnings. So there's massive, massive costs to that. I think what we're finding, though, is patients love it. We're flipping healthcare on its head. So what we're doing is we're getting people before they become unwell and we're reaching out to them. So rather than them having to phone us and say, doctor, I'm feeling ill, actually, we're phoning them to say, gosh, you don't look like you're well, is everything okay? And we're starting to treat them. With hypertension, it's even further upstream than that. Hypertension, as we know, you have no, sorry, high blood pressure, you have no ill effects from it at all. The first thing you will notice is a heart attack or a stroke, which is a disastrous effect. So we're helping to support these patients long before that point in time. And very broadly, it isn't just about medication for us. It's around lifestyle changes. It's about diet. It's about weight loss. It's about alcohol. It's about supporting you to be the healthiest you can be and not just relying on medication. So I think broadly, there's three things there to summarise. It's enabling patients to get the care they need. Once they get that, it's about signposting to the best place to get the care that you need. And actually, it's about helping prevent you needing to have that care that you might need by helping you to be the most healthy person that you can be. Brilliant. Thanks, Dan, for that insight. It's really interesting to see what's happening on the ground. Uh, I know we've talked a lot about what's going on and what we can do in the future today. Uh, but, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see what's happening right now. Um, just to kind of echo my absolute support for everything that Dan's doing in Chapelford and across Wood and PCN, I think... Um, 
I think digital triage is really important. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't really touch on this element of patient empowerment, but of course, it's not just about self-managing your condition, but being able to navigate an increasingly complex healthcare system. And I think we're only at the beginning of what digital triage can do. You know, I've spoken to a few providers. I think many of them are kind of offering um, signposting to different R's roles. Some of them are starting to go a little bit further and be a little bit adaptive to how the practice works using AI. Some are starting to signpost the self-care resources, um, but you can quickly see how it could be expanded so that patients with social needs are direct, kind of socially signposted to different services or those with financial needs. So it goes beyond just healthcare. And I think as we start seeing the use of um, patient self-referral routes expand, which we know is an ambition of NHS England, you can imagine how triage might evolve to include that as well. So the patient is told, you don't even need to see your practice. You can just self-refer to the hospital for this particular condition. So um, I think it's a, it's a really powerful tool. It's great to see it being used so effectively um, in, in Warrington. Um, I think as well, the, the population health management piece is, is really exciting. And I've been wondering when the first, you know, when there was a lot of buzz around population health management and all that kind of high level data, I did kind of think there's huge potential, but how is it actually going to be used in general practice. And I think Dan's outlined some really great use cases. I think essentially we'll see even more use cases develop as NHS England builds its digital health check, um, which I think they're due to start accepting bids for procurement pretty soon. So that'll just be another way we can reach out for the highest risk patients and say, this is how you can do a quick one-stop shop, check your health from the comfort of your own home. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just to just to echo Tom's point effectively that we've we, we've talked about proactive care for the last ten years and sort of sat there and wrung our hands and said, oh gosh, what would happen if we didn't do anything? Well, I don't think we did do anything, and here we are now. So if you fast forward ten years down the line, the, the situation's going to be much worse and insurmountable at that stage. Patients want it, the system needs it, so it has to be the direction of travel. Yeah, Tom. Um, sorry to jump in there. I just I just thought one, one follow-up point is I think one of the reasons we've not managed to do things with population health at the moment is there's been this question of, well, whose responsibility is it? It feels a little bit kind of public health. Um, the funding is sometimes challenging whenever you're talking about preventative care because the benefits are so much further down the road. Um, I'm just interested to understand what the conversations were at a PCN level down around how you kind of got some some of your practices um, to back this idea of really getting behind preventative population level healthcare. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. I mean, it's something that was was obvious from the, the description around why we picked the two. But one of the reasons we picked COPD and hypertension was exactly that. Uh, not getting too technical, but getting very practical. I suspect we can probably save the NHS system money from avoiding any admissions by treating our COPD patients inside the same year. Whereas actually, you're right, the, the financial payoff is a little bit further down the line for the hypertension patients, for the blood pressure patients. It's a difficult topic to talk about. And of course, so much so that I've not even brought that into the conversation now, but the frank reality of NHS funding is it's limited. So you have to do things that will probably make some financial impact in year that can then enable you to reinvest to make those bigger savings for five and 10 years down the line. But you're spot on. Yeah. I mean, how, how do we? That's the exact reason why population health management has such difficulty making traction and the exact reason why we've combined the two together 
in year savings and then longer term savings too uh yeah well tom's actually asked a lot of the things i wanted to ask to be fair <laughs> um but dan this was fantastic i mean it's really uh because i literally I, I came off a pcm meeting earlier today um and it's just uh really refreshing to hear um this kind of massive level of just clear-cut direction of what you want to do and how you've gone about doing it and the kind of the benefits um, that your patients are going to have. I mean, I feel like they're lucky to have you uh, up there, right? So it's just really, really good stuff. Um, um, I don't really have much to say because it was just I'm just really impressed with it. I mean, I would love you to if you could package it down and just sell it down to us down here um, because it's just that 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 intervention and that like kind of foresight I think is wonderful. Um, so. Um, I, I I would love to like uh, just see the like how you went about doing it, or maybe just like if you have like his presentation slides. I mean, if you could just DM me, that'd be great. I mean, uh, I'd love to see more about that. Yeah, sure, cool. sure. We, we can trade ideas with the good work you're doing down there too, the uh, with the care homes. So fine, let's uh, let's do that for thank sure. You. Cheers. Brilliant. Um, and before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you very much for all joining today. Um, on a personal level, I've definitely learned a lot. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um. It's been great to listen. Uh, once again, on our podcast today, we've had Zishan from Black Country ICB. We've had Martin from North East London ICB. We've had Tom from Cheshire Merseyside ICS and Dan as well from Cheshire Merseyside ICS. If you are hiring for any technical roles or looking for a new role yourself, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone else you know would like to feature on the podcast, please drop me a message. I'm Louis. You can find me on LinkedIn or alternatively visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thank you again to our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.